Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off. Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. A very familiar passage to many of you, I would, I would gather, uh, and one that I think will, uh, will be of, uh, I hope, will be of great encouragement to us this morning. As you find your way to Mark chapter 5 and verse 21, I just want to remind us of where we've come so far in Mark. We started at the beginning of Mark chapter 1 with this presentation by Mark, the gospel writer of Jesus, the Son of God, uh, there being baptized by John in the Jordan and beginning his teaching ministry. We've seen Jesus, the powerful healer, healing people like Peter's mother-in-law and lots of sick people and demon-possessed persons. Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the calmer of storms. Jesus, the, the depossessor of a man full of a legion of demons. All along the way, we have been mindful to remember the point of Mark. The purpose of Mark is to get us to know Jesus. Mark tells us his purpose uh, right there in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Above and beyond anything else, Mark wants us to know the identity of Jesus. He is the promised Messiah, and he is the very divine Son of God. Here in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, following the, the passage we just, well, we didn't just look at, but several weeks ago we looked at, where Jesus went to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to the land of, uh, of the Gerasenes, and there uh, sent a legion of demons out of a man. Now Jesus is going back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, back to uh, uh, the town of Capernaum. And in our passage today, we have two back-to-back -back demonstrations of Jesus' power. Here, not over the created world, like when he calmed the storm, nor necessarily over the spiritual world, like when he cast the demons out of the man, but his power over the greatest enemies of humanity, sickness and death. In Mark 5, 21 to 43, Jesus, as the Son of God, commends, he encourages those who trust him as the one who has power over sickness and death. The, the main idea to us from this passage today and in the sermon that we'll explore is that Jesus is the great physician who has power for those who trust him. Jesus is the great physician who has power for those who trust him. And as we see this truth in God's word, I hope that we should come to understand the power of Christ applied to those who believe, and then let's believe him. Let's trust him. I invite you to stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Mark, the gospel writer, continues in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, remember going back to the west side of the sea, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother? Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus, the great physician, has power for those who trust him. Uh, this passage, this scene <clears throat> in Jesus' life is full of all kinds of insights and neat little nuggets that we could glean and mine from it. But this morning, I want to draw our attention to just, to just three of them, three things that this text reveals about Jesus. First of all, Jesus receives very different people. Jesus receives very different kinds of people. And we've seen before Mark doing this neat little narrative sandwich thing where he sticks one event in the life of Jesus between the beginning and the conclusion of another event in the life of Jesus. The first one, the first sandwich we saw was when Mark placed Jesus' teaching on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in between accusations by Jesus' family that he was out of his mind and his family's attempt to get him to quit his ministry and to come home. There, in that place, the contrast of events in that sandwich reveal, reveals something about the connection between opposition to the Holy Spirit and opposition to Jesus, that to oppose one is to oppose the other, and that those who are Jesus' rightful family are those who believe Him and who seek to do the will of God. Well, in this little sandwich, we get an interaction with a desperate man and a desperate woman who come from very different backgrounds and who come to Jesus in very different and also very similar ways. The sandwich here is Jairus and his sick daughter on the front end and Jairus' daughter on the back end and in the middle, this desperate woman. So let's look at the very different people who come to Jesus in this passage. First of all, Jairus. Jairus, we learn very quickly, as Mark is sure to tell us, is one of the leaders of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Capernaum was a town that was the home base for Jesus. It's probably where Peter, the, uh, Simon Peter, the disciple, lived um, along with his wife and his mother-in-law who lived in their home. Uh, the synagogue there in Capernaum, the gathering place for worship by the Jews who lived there, was where Jesus did a lot of his teaching uh, there in that place. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, is, is uh, among a group of sort of elders there who would uh, organize and arrange and maintain order in the, the weekly worship and administration of the synagogue there. Maybe similar to like uh, one of a, a number of pastors at a local church. Not exactly the same thing, but close. Likely, uh, Jesus had interaction with Jairus before. If Jesus had taught in that synagogue, he probably knew all of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus being one of them. And so there's probably a connection of relationship here between the two. 
Now, as a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus would have been a, a man of significant means and influence within the community. People knew who he was. They cared about him. He, he had probably enough, enough means, uh, maybe that he was a little better off, perhaps, than some of the other people in the community, but he was a, perf- a person of significant influence and authority. And as we find Jairus, this man of influence, of authority, this man of means, we find that his little daughter, as he says, is deathly ill, so sick that no one can do anything else for her. And this man, this ruler of, syn- of the synagogue, who has seen Jesus heal people before, knows that if anyone can help in this very desperate situation, it's Jesus. And so this man of power and influence throws himself at the feet and the mercy of Jesus and says, please come heal my daughter. That's one of the people that comes to Jesus in this passage. What about the other? The other is a woman, a woman with a, a bleeding issue, a bleeding disease. Now, unlike Jairus, this woman doesn't get a name. Did you notice that? She's not mentioned, although she's probably known in the community. Her name is not mentioned by Mark. She is herself sick, not quite like, or she's sick like Jairus' daughter, maybe not deathly ill, but in a different way. She has some sort of abnormal uterine bleeding problem. This is not her regular menstrual period. This is a a long-lasting issue. This is an issue that would have made her ritually unclean according to the law. Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 30, gives instruction to the people of God for cleansing when they have bleeding issues like this. But she's never stopped bleeding, and so she's been perpetually unclean. The bleeding has never stopped for her to be able to go through the the ritual cleansing process and then to re-enter the worship of her people uh, along with her, her community in the synagogue or in the temple in Jerusalem. She is in many ways perpetually unclean like a leper is perpetually unclean. And she has suffered, Mark says. She has suffered under the care of many physicians. And worse than that, it's been going on for 12 years. Can you imagine? Such a malady, such such an affliction lasting for over a decade, being ritually unclean for 12 years, such that every bed you lie on, every seat that you sit on, every person that you touch also becomes unclean and has to be purified through ritual cleansing for 12 years. Mark doesn't tell us if this woman had a a, a family or a husband or anything like that, but you could imagine the spiritual, emotional, and physical toll that her uncleanness would take on the whole family as well every day. Every day would become a process of cleansing the house so that everybody in the house would not be unclean. She has suffered under the care of many physicians, and she's not gotten better. She's only gotten worse, and beyond that, she spent every penny she has. She comes to Jesus, like like Jairus, but not like Jairus. She doesn't come to Jesus' face like Jairus does. She sneaks up behind him in the crowd. Put yourself in the shoes and the place of this woman for a moment and imagine what it would be like knowing that you are ritually unclean and any other person that you touch in the community also becomes unclean, trying to make your way through to, to Jesus through this crowd that is pressed in around him. She's, she's ducking and dodging through this, the, the flailing arms and, and, and unexpected movements of people in the crowd to try to get to Jesus, knowing that every person she touches along the way also becomes unclean because of their physical contact with her. So she's avoiding at all costs, trying, to touch, or trying not to touch all of these other people. And then she gets up to Jesus and reaches her hand out to touch his garment. Perhaps you wonder, maybe like this woman who is 
not quite been an outcast, but she's certainly been on the periphery of society because of her disease for so long. Perhaps you wonder, does, does God, does, does Jesus even care about me? Does he even see me? I don't even know if my own family and my friends or my boss know that I really exist. Why in the world would God care about me? I hope that you see from these two people, Jairus and this woman, juxtaposed against each other, one a prominent man, the other a nameless woman, that Jesus does see, and Jesus does receive people from every part of the spectrum of human existence, men and women, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, prominent and otherwise unknown, religious leader and unclean sinner, Jesus receives all sorts of people. Amen. This is the very miracle and the beauty of the incarnation, that the infinite God and creator of the universe stepped into human flesh in the man Jesus of Nazareth, not to be far off from people, not to be far away from sinners, but to be near to them, to touch them, to heal them, and ultimately to die as we all do, but not because of his sins. Rather, he dies as we're all destined to, in the place of sinners, the thief next to Jesus on the cross who recognized Christ as Lord is received by Jesus, the same as Nicodemus, that great religious ruler who was searching for the Messiah. There is no type of person Jesus is afraid to be near or whom he is unwilling to engage. See that in this text. Jesus receives all kinds of people. But secondly, see that Jesus commends he encourages, he calls people to wholehearted faith. He commends wholehearted faith. Let's look first at the faith of this nameless woman. The woman in this case is an interesting figure for a lot of reasons, but most of all for her faith, for her trust, her belief in Jesus. We get that she is in a desperate situation. There's nothing that can be done. Everything that could be done has been done and it hasn't made anything better but worse. No doctors, nothing else has worked to fix her complaint for the last decade plus. She, probably being a resident of Capernaum, has heard about Jesus, maybe seen him before, just like everyone else in the crowd. Maybe she knows about how Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law or the other sick and demon-possessed people. Maybe she knows about the man in the synagogue with a withered hand that Jesus healed that one Sabbath day. My guess is that if she knew anything about Jesus or had heard about any of these things, she probably also heard about that incurably unclean leper that Jesus touched that one time and how Jesus only stretched out his hand to lay it upon the man and the man's leprosy was gone and he was made instantly clean. And she believes with all the faith that she can muster, all I have to do, all I have to do is touch his garment. I'm risking making him unclean by touching him. Yeah, but I... I have nothing else to try. There's nowhere else to go. I don't have a penny left to my name. And when Jesus touched the leper, when Jesus touched the leper, Jesus didn't become unclean. He made the leper clean. Amen. All I got to do is touch him. Now, it's interesting because the woman's belief, her faith in Jesus is, is astonishingly close to pagan superstition. If I just touch this thing, if I just say the right formula, if I, if I just do the right thing the right way, if I just don't wash my, my favorite 49ers jersey the entire s season long, they'll win all their games. Her, her faith is a little bit like that. If I just touch him, I'll, I'll be healed. But this woman's likely not a pagan. She's probably, very likely, a Jewish woman. And her belief in the power of Jesus to heal seems almost magical, almost superstitious. Nevertheless, with nothing else to do, she touches Jesus and she's healed. 
And Jesus, perceiving power going out of him in a healing way, turns to ask, who touched me? What just happened? And the disciples totally befuddled, like, Jesus, surely you understand the mosh pit that we're in right now. Don't you? Like, you feel all these people pressing against you, and you want to know who touched you? They're all touching you, man. And Jesus asked that question, who touched me? The woman, knowing everything that happened and how she was made well, makes herself known to Jesus. She now comes to his face the way that Jairus had just earlier. She tells Jesus the whole truth, Mark says, and nothing but the truth. She tells him everything. She tells him about the bleeding. She tells him about the doctors. She tells him about how they took every last penny of hers and that she's only getting worse and that she thought with hope against hope, all I have to do is touch your cloak, Jesus. And I did, and I was healed. It's interesting in the way that Jesus responds to this woman. He doesn't scorn her for being sneaky. How dare you sneak up behind me? You should come to me face to face. No. He doesn't chide her for making him unclean by touching him. Woman, don't you know what's happened to me? Now I have to go wash and be declared clean before I can go into the synagogue or go into the temple. He doesn't, get, he doesn't chide her for that. He doesn't shame her for her presumption to come up behind and touch a man that she's not married to. No, he commends her for her faith. And more than that, he identifies her. This nameless woman who remains nameless now has a title. And what is that title? Daughter. Amen. Jesus says to her, daughter, my little girl. Jairus comes to Jesus in the beginning of this passage and says, my little girl is sick and died. Jesus turns to this woman without a name who reached out with the audacity of faith to touch his cloak to be made well, and he calls her daughter. The children of Israel were those who believed and trusted the covenant-making God, Yahweh, who rescued his people from slavery and exile and who promised a Messiah to bring a new covenant by his blood. And Jesus says, yes, my little girl, yes, daughter, you have done well to believe. Your faith in God's power to heal through me has made you well, so go in peace. The Hebrew equivalent of that word peace is shalom, wholeness of life in spirit. Jesus says, go in shalom, I make you well. Jesus commends the faith of the nameless woman. And then there's Jairus. Now, mind you, Jairus is standing by while all of this happens. He goes to Jesus, my little girl's sick, she's dying, only you can help. Jesus says, okay, let's go. A couple of minutes later, there's this crowd and this woman shows up and Jesus starts talking with this woman and Jairus is standing by while all of this happens, knowing that every minute, every moment that Jesus spends with this woman in this crowd is one moment closer his daughter is to death. Every second feeling like an eternity to Jairus. And given the urgency of his daughter's situation, you can imagine that Jairus is getting more than a little bit worried. We might not make it in time. I don't want to rush him, but she's dying. And as it turns out, the delay with the woman has gone too long. Some people from Jairus' house come and tell Jairus that his daughter is dead. There's nothing anyone can do. Don't bother Jesus anymore. And Jesus, still half engaged or ending his engagement with this, or his conversation with this woman he just healed, Jesus overhearing what these people are saying to Jairus, having just commended this woman who fearfully and faithfully trusted that he could heal her, Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, after someone just said, hey, your daughter's dead, let's just go home and start the funeral arrangements, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, only believe. The word for faith 
Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well. The word for faith in the Bible has the same root meaning and the same root word as the word for belief. One's kind of a noun, the other's sort of a verb, but they have the same root at the center. Jesus, who just said to the woman, your faith has made you well, now says to Jairus, have faith, my friend. Believe in the power of God like this woman has. Jesus is teaching something about faith. He's commending, he's encouraging this man, Jairus, who's just been told that his daughter died. Believe, Jairus. Have faith, Jairus. And we need to understand here that faith is not some magical belief. It's not even some hope against hope for a positive outcome. That's not what faith is in the pages of Scripture. Faith in the context of the Bible is always a dependent trust upon the person of God to do what only God can do. It's not even faith, friend. It's not even faith in a preferred outcome. It's not just believing that God can do something. It is trusting God, period. It is not faith in healing that is expressed by the woman and commended by Jesus. She's not coming believing for healing. She's coming believing Jesus can heal. She's coming believing Jesus himself. It's a faith, a trust, a dependence upon the man, Jesus Christ, who is himself able to do all that he desires. And Jesus commands, commends the faith of the woman, and he encourages Jairus to the same thing, to have faith, to have belief, to trust him despite the circumstances. Because this is always what God has called people to do, to trust him. And it's always how we are to approach Jesus, with trust in him, with complete dependence upon him. Genesis 15, verse 6, first book of the Bible, uh, before Israel was ever a nation, they were one man, the man Abraham. God called Abraham from the land of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land that God would show to him and he would make him a great nation. And we're told in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and God credited it to him for righteousness. God said to Abraham, because you believe me, because you trust me, because you depend upon me, you are in good standing with me. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, verses 14 to 16, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, depends upon him, may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus said to Martha, Martha and her sister Mary and their brother Lazarus, good friends of Jesus. Lazarus got sick and died. Jesus said to Martha as her brother Lazarus was laying dead in a tomb. In John eleven twenty five to 27, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, trusts in me, has dependence upon me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ the Son of God who's coming into the world. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed. Jairus, don't be afraid. Believe. In this passage, Jesus is displaying, and he has the whole way through Mark to this point, he is displaying that he is totally trustworthy, totally worthy of receiving, of, of being the one that people depend upon. He has all power to do wonderful things for those who come to him by faith. 
as you, Christian, as you think about your relationship to Jesus? Is it one of total dependence upon Him as God in flesh who died for you and was raised? Is it Him you are trusting? Or is it merely what He can do for you that you are trusting? There is a subtle difference between believing Jesus can do something, even something miraculous, and believing Jesus. And the difference between the two is, an, is either saving or condemning. Believing simply that Jesus can do something is not the same as trusting Jesus. Believing that Jesus can do something is more like superstition, more like magic. If I just trust the right way, if I pray the right way, if I do this or do that, then maybe I can figure out the formula and then that power will come to me. Whereas the other position says, Jesus, I'm entirely yours. Life or death, rich or poor. This sounds like a marriage covenant. But that's kind of what it is. Faith in Christ is kind of like that. It is, it is us saying to Jesus, wherever you go, I go. Whatever you do, I'm right behind you. Where, wherever you lead me, I will follow. I, my life is entirely in your hands. If you, if you save me from this disease, wonderful. If you don't, that's fine too. You're in charge. I trust you. Christian, which, which of those two scenarios describes your faith more accurately? Going beyond mere physical healing... To, to spiritual healing and, and forgiveness of sins, a, a, a better, a deeper kind of healing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it is by grace, by, by God's unmerited gift, that you have been saved through faith, through believing. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. A right relationship with God comes by trusting Jesus. Not just believing that he can do something, but entrusting your whole life to his sovereign care and provision and salvation. Not by trusting that my good works will be enough. That doesn't get me salvation. Not by trusting that God sees my church attendance and my well-behaved kids. That doesn't get me saved. But a total dependence upon Jesus who has paid the price of my salvation. That's what saving faith is. So friend, you who are not yet a Christian... I hope this morning you understand that our faith as followers of Jesus, maybe you're here as a skeptic or you're a little bit cynical, our faith as followers of Jesus is not just some other kind of magic or superstition. Christians are, are not those who, who never wash their jersey in hopes that Jesus will save us. And that this is never what the Bible calls us to. Rather, our hope, our trust, our, our dependence is entirely upon a good God and His perfect Son who always does what is right, who always does what is best, and who always does what is for His greatest good for those who love Him. Amen. Jesus commends wholehearted faith. Not superstitious belief that He can do something, but wholehearted dependence upon Him as a person, come hell or high water. Jesus receives all different kinds of people. This passage teaches us this event in His life Teaches us that he commends, he encourages, he calls people to wholehearted trust and dependence on him. Don't be afraid, Jairus, only believe. But finally, and maybe most excitedly, in this passage we see that Jesus heals completely. Jesus heals completely. At the close of this passage, we see the results of faith in Christ. Results of dependence upon him. For the woman, her 12-year-long battle with this bleeding problem is to use Mark's favorite word, immediately cleared up. 
Her body is completely whole. The relationships that once were estranged because of her uncleanness are now able to be reconciled. The worship that she missed in the synagogue and in the temple has been restored. Jesus does more than give her health. He gives her peace. He gives her shalom. He gives her wholeness of life. And for Jairus' daughter, who went from sick to dead, there's complete healing too. Jesus goes with Jairus back to his house and he confronts the professional mourners who are there, who are making a commotion in Jairus' house. Jesus says in an enigmatic way, a puzzling sort of way, why are you making such a commotion? She's not dead. She's only asleep. Now, these mourners think Jesus is nuts. And they, they laugh at him because they, this is their job. They go to the houses where people have just died and they mourn for that person. This is what they get paid to do. They bring their flutes, they sing their songs, they play their tambourines, they weep and they wail the way that, that, that anybody who would, who would want someone who's, who, who's lost a loved one would, would want to, to be mourned over. They come and do that. Jesus, we've seen a lot of dead people, man. It's our job. I think of the funeral directors that I've been able to work with over time. Like they, if you don't know when a dead person is dead, you don't need to be in that line of work. These are those kind of people who know when dead people are dead. And Jesus has the audacity to say, quit making so much noise. This girl's sleeping. They laugh at him. Jesus isn't here, though, giving a diagnosis. He's not saying she's not really dead. He's saying this is not the end for this little girl. And so he kicks everybody but the family and his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, kicks everybody out of the room. And Jesus does a very, very simple, understated thing. He kneels down by the bedside of the little girl and he takes her hand. He takes her now dead, cold, lifeless hand in his hand. Now mind you, touching a corpse, touching a dead body would have made Jesus ritually unclean, just like touching a leper or being touched by this woman with a bleeding disease. But just as touching the woman with the uterine bleeding disease and, and touching the, the leper before did not make Jesus unclean, but brought cleanness and wholeness to their life, at his, at his one word, little girl, get up, the little girl is no longer dead, but alive. She's not an unclean corpse with a stain of death all over her, but she's the same living, smiling, laughing, and now apparently also hungry because Jesus says, get her a snack for heaven's sake. She's the same little girl that Jairus loved so much. So it's to find Jesus to heal her. She's back to life. Those who come to Jesus with dependent faith, like this woman, like Jairus, are not disappointed. But dear friend, they are rather entirely healed. Now I want to remind us today that this passage in Mark, even caution us today, that this passage in Mark's gospel and this event in Jesus' life is not meant to set a pattern for healing by trusting in every case all the time. Too many Christian, or excuse me, too many charlatan faith healers have misled people to believe that this is the case in Mark chapter 5. That if you just believe enough, you'll get the healing. Friends, that's more like pagan superstition than it is faith in Christ. They've given promises of healing from all sorts of diseases, promises even of resuscitation from the dead. If people will just have enough faith. This passage, friend, is not teaching us that. So don't, don't walk away this morning saying, oh, Mark 5 tells me that I can raise people from the dead. Not even close. Remember, the point of Mark's gospel. The point of Mark's gospel is not to give us a pattern to emulate, a, a process to reproduce, 
Mark's gospel, the point of Mark's gospel is to point us to the identity of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us his agenda right from the front. This is who Jesus is. And there are a good many places of Scripture where people believe, have a lot of faith, and they're not healed. They're not healed like this woman or Jairus' daughter. Paul, the apostle, is a key example with his thorn in the flesh about which he prayed three times to God, remove it so I can be of more useful service to you. And three times God tells Paul, nope. My power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, this thorn in the flesh is my gift to you. This suffering that you have in your life is my gift to you to make you all the more dependent upon me. And there are a good many other believers who die and are not resuscitated. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. James, the brother of Jesus, beheaded for his faith. Peter, crucified on a cross upside down. None of these resuscitated, despite all the faith they had in Jesus ahead of time and throughout their life. Rather than teaching us that Jesus heals every affliction, if we just believe hard enough, this passage is teaching us something greater. Namely, it is teaching us that Jesus is the one like Isaiah 53, 3-4 says, who bears our affliction and brings healing by his wounds. The, the physical exchange of Jesus' power for the woman's uncleanness and the way that he brings a dead girl back to life are, are not examples for us to follow, but these are signposts to a greater healing and a better resurrection yet to come. The greater healing of uncleanness that we all need is not healing from physical disease, but healing from sin and its effect of separating us from God and bringing brokenness into every part of our lives. The greater resurrection that we need is not just resuscitation from the dead only to die again some other day, but the greater resurrection that we need is one from spiritual death to spiritual life that comes by having our sins removed from us, cast as far as the east is from the west, completely covered, removed, forgiven forever. Jesus gives complete healing in all the ways that ultimately matter for us. Not by, not by healing this woman and bringing this dead girl back to life. These are signposts to a greater work that he does, a greater work he does for us ultimately at the cross. Where there, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for our good, God made Christ to be sin, to be treated like our sin. He who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a great exchange that happens in Mark chapter 5 between Jesus and this woman. She comes with all of her brokenness and her faith, and Jesus gives her healing. Jairus comes with his dead daughter and as much faith as he can muster in Jesus, and Jesus gives him his daughter back. But friend, at the cross, at the cross, Jesus took the weight of your, the inestimable weight of your sin, of your offense against a holy God. He took it on himself. He paid the penalty for your sin, which by the way, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us Jesus took that death for you at the cross. And in exchange, when we come to him with faith, with trust, with dependence upon him who died for sins and was raised again, when we come depending on him as the only sacrifice to make us right with God, he gives us something in return. Not something as, as, as trifling as physical wholeness although I don't, and physical wellness, although I don't want to make too little of that. Not something as, 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 as little as being resuscitated from the dead. He gives us right standing with God. Amen. He gives us a right relationship with the God that we have infinitely offended by our sin. This is the beautiful, blessed truth in exchange that, that this healing event in Jesus' life 
is ultimately pointing to a better healing, forgiveness of sin, a better resurrection, our resurrection from the dead. Jesus gives complete healing in all the ways that ultimately matter for us at the cross. Ephesians 2, 1 and 4 says, You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friend, apart from Christ, that's all of us. Under the righteous hand of God's wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now that's a resurrection. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, endures death, becoming himself an unclean corpse so that we might be made clean of sin. And his dead body was raised to glorious, physical, everlasting life on the third day so that we who have trusted in him and been healed of our sinful hearts might also be raised from the dead in glorious, physical bodies to live with him forever. Friends, I want more than resuscitation. I want resurrection. Friend, if you are sick, and you long for healing today. You are physically ill. I'm not telling you not to pray for healing. Goodness, no. Jesus is still powerful to heal, and sometimes he does. But physical healing is not the whole story. Physical healing is not the greatest blessing you can have from God. We need a deeper, more meaningful spiritual healing. We need more than quality of life as long as we live. We need a kind and quality of life that only Christ offers to us and is only received by trusting him. And he offers it freely at no charge, gratis to the one who trusts him. Jesus gives life and salvation to the down and out who place their faith in him. And he is kind and he's saving to the up and in, the well-connected who see their desperate need of him and trust him without fear. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus demonstrates that there is no one so hopeless that they are beyond his help. And there is no one so well off that they are without need of his help. He receives all kinds of people. And he calls all kinds of people to come with him with wholehearted, dependent faith. Do you see your need of his help to make you whole? Do you see need of his help to make you at peace with God by taking your sin today? Do you long to be made alive in spirit? Jesus alone has power to give you all of this. You need only trust him, depend on him, believe him, and be not afraid. Christian, you who have trusted Christ without fear, who have all the joy of knowing that you've been made right with God because Christ died in your place and was raised from the dead and all of your life, all of your hope for salvation is resting on Him. Not just the things He can do for you, but the things that He has done to make you right with God. If your faith is in Him, you know the joy in an exceeding way than this, even far beyond this woman who was healed or this man whose daughter was raised. You ought to know a greater joy than they had because of what Christ has done for you. And so in a moment, when we sing a song of response, you can sing with gladness and lightness of heart knowing that Christ has taken your infirmities, your, your sins, your, your spiritual sicknesses on himself on the cross and he put them there to death. And that as you've trusted him, he has brought you to a new kind, a new quality of life that doesn't come by just living our best life now. It's a kind and quality of life that only God can give by his Holy Spirit that lives in us when we simply trust Jesus. So Christian, you who have simply trusted Jesus and are desiring to walk with him faithfully today, in a moment when we sing, sing your guts out for joy in Christ who saves, in joy who receives all kinds of people. Like you can look around this room. We're a motley crew. And Jesus says to all who are here, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Doesn't matter where you come from, where you've been, what you look like, who you voted for. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Trust me.
That's what Jesus says to everyone in this room. And we who have believed him should know the great joy, the great even unity of, of faith in Christ that, that is brought to a group of people like us. We have to know that and sing with gladness in our hearts. For those who don't yet know it, right, to see the effects, to see the fruit of it. Friend, if you're here today and seeing this picture of Jesus receiving people and commending their faith, not superstition, but trust in him, and your desire is to know him, to trust him, to walk with him the way that these people in this passage have done, and even better, I invite you, uh, after our service has, has concluded, will you come and talk with me? Let's pray together. Let's, let's, let's talk with one another and, and see what God says in his word about being made right with God through faith in Jesus. Let's get you on the road to salvation and discipleship today. Christian, have joy today and trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Let's pray together.